In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Isn't it great to be able to still say that? Because Christmas is all about joy. And as Christians, we want to receive all the joy of this season. Merry Christmas. I can say it five more times. Don't worry, I won't. But I'm just so happy. This is so great to receive all this joy. We are celebrating the fact that God loves us so much that he came among us as Savior and Redeemer. That he did not want sin or darkness or the brokenness of this world to be the last word in terms of our lives. That through his son Jesus Christ, he's given us the opportunity for salvation. To allow brokenness to be healed. Light to come from darkness. To allow salvation to, usher, to be ushered forth from damnation. What a tremendous gift we have. What a mystery we are celebrating as Christians. And so much joy is wanting to be given to us by God. And we have to just keep opening our hearts and keep receiving all that joy. But we know that that the Christmas season actually does conclude today. It concludes today with the Feast of the Epiphany. So next weekend we move back to ordinary time. We know during ordinary time Mother Church takes us back to the classroom and reteaches us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be shifting our focus next weekend. But for now, let's focus and let's talk about Epiphany. The celebration of of Christmas concludes with this high feast day. The word Epiphany means the manifestation, the making known, and the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed Savior, who is known to his people Israel, is today made known, manifested to the nations, to each of us. How appropriate that the Epiphany would be marked by the arrival of the Magi of the East, It emphasizes that the salvation offered in Jesus Christ is offered to every man and to every woman of every tribe, nation, and people. We know that the Magi, when they arrived, the Christ child was a little under two years old. Let's talk about that. So oftentimes I can catch some people off guard. Like, wait, what? The Christ child was two years old almost, right? About a year and a half or so. Yes, let's look at the gospel. We are told that when the Magi arrive, there is a child, not an infant, The Holy Family is living in a house. They're no longer in the shepherd's cave. And later we know that when King Herod finds out that the Magi left and went back to their home region without telling him, in his anger, he ordered the execution of all boys two and under. Why two and under? Because he had learned about the timing of the star from the Magi. And he wanted to make sure that he executed this child that was claiming to be a new king. So in these ways, we can understand the sequence of events in terms of the Magi. Incidentally, this understanding is also the basis of the practice of moving the Magi all throughout the Christmas season. Did you notice that the Magi started over here at the beginning of Christmas? And then they slowly made their way over. They were over there. And only now, today on Epiphany, have they arrived there with the Christ. In fact, in many Christian homes, families will do that as well, especially with Christian homes with children. So you just place the Christ child, the Magi, all throughout the home. And then throughout the Christmas season, the Magi are moving, moving, moving closer and closer to get to Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I was the director of the Drexel House in Charleston, which is a Catholic residence for young men, we would follow that practice. One year, we put the Magi all throughout the house, and in the hustle and bustle of life, well, we all forgot where we put them. (laughs) So we had to pray to St. Anthony in order to find the Magi. It was okay that we found the Magi, everything was good to go, right? But the idea is that the Magi would move throughout the Christmas season and then eventually arrive uh, to Christ. Again, the arrival of the Magi when the Christ is just a little under two years old might surprise many people. 
since in popular thought, many people think, well, the shepherds and the magi arrived the same night and on the, at the birth of our, of our Savior. But again, the scriptures tell us a different story. As you understand that, it might be good to just walk through the sequence of events in terms of the early life of our Lord. So we know that Joseph was of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah. So Joseph's hometown was Nazareth. Our Lady actually grew up in Jerusalem, but she moved to Nazareth as she was being prepared to be betrothed to Joseph. And Joseph was established in Nazareth, but he was of the tribe of Judah. So when the imperial census said you have to go back to your home region, Joseph had to take his now betrothed wife, who was pregnant, and take her to Bethlehem, which was the heart of the tribe of Judah. And of course, when he arrived, we are told there was no room at the inn. Now, first of all, the fact that they were looking for an inn tells us a lot. Because in the ancient world, you didn't stay at the inn unless you were a foreigner. You stayed with family. So the fact that they were looking for an inn indicates that there was a disconnection with the extended family. Joseph did not know his immediate family in Bethlehem. So he looked for the inn, for room at the inn, and there was none. So then we were told they go to a shepherd's cave. Sometimes people forget that detail. We all know about the manger, but the manger, the feeding trough, was in a shepherd's cave. So they go into the shepherd's cave, and there, of course, Our Lady gives birth. Now, what's interesting is our, the Christ was born, the shepherds arrive, there's a celebration of life. Eight days after that, while still in the shepherd's cave, the Christ child is circumcised. Every Jewish boy is circumcised on the eighth day. He's circumcised in order to show that he is the son of Abraham. So our Lord allowed himself to be circumcised in the mire and the dirt and the muck of that shepherd's cave. It was the first blood that he would shed for our salvation. It was during his circumcision that Joseph named him Jesus by the command of the angel. Now after the circumcision, we're told that the Holy Family stayed in Bethlehem. And we're not exactly sure why they did that. It might have just been that they did not have the means to go back to Nazareth. And so they stayed there in Bethlehem. It's also possible that at this point, Joseph reconnected with members of his extended family. It's also possible that Joseph found some work. You know, oftentimes we say Joseph was a carpenter, but really Joseph was more like a general contractor. In fact, we know that by the time the Christ is an adult, when he's some 30 years old, Joseph is known throughout the whole region of Galilee. They're speaking about Joseph at Capernaum. And if you go to Nazareth to this day, you can see the ruins of their house. By the time Jesus was an adult, they had a pretty nice house. They were pretty well established. So the poverty we see of the Holy Family now is not the poverty they will have later when, the, when Jesus Christ is an adult. But we know here they're in Bethlehem, for some reason they stayed. But we know that 40 days after his birth, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Jerusalem because he's the firstborn child. And that's just a legal term under the law of Moses. So even if he had no other children, such as Mary and Joseph had no other children, that you would still refer to the firstborn as the firstborn. It was a legal title under the law of Moses. So they go to the temple in Jerusalem in order to present the firstborn child. We're told about that. That's where Simeon and Anna praise the Christ child. And then we know that there's poverty at this point because the Holy Family offer two turtle doves. They don't offer the, the, the lamb. They offer the poor man's offering of two turtle doves, we are told in the scriptures. So after the presentation in Jerusalem, they go back to Bethlehem. They do not return to Nazareth. And again, we're not exactly sure why this happened. Again, it's possible that Joseph found work or reconnected with his family, but the Holy Family returns to Bethlehem. And there we see them making that home. 
to the point where when the Christ child is about a year and a half old, they're established and are living in a house. When the Magi arrive, everything changes, however. We know the Magi come from the east, they follow the star, they go to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, they consult with King Herod, they consult them with the leaders and scribes of the law, and then they move on to Bethlehem. When they arrive in Bethlehem, everything changes. Why? Because King Herod was a very jealous king. And when the Magi of the East arrive and they say, where is the newborn king? He didn't like anyone talking about any other king other than himself. Herod was also very sensitive because Herod was not Jewish. You see, Herod's mother was not Jewish. His father was Jewish. The Jewish line is always followed by the mother's blood, then and now. The Jewish people guard the bloodline through motherhood. And so his mother was not Jewish. Herod was not Jewish. That's why he called himself the king of the Jews. No one ever used that term before Herod. The king of the Jews. He's compensating because he's very insecure. And so when the Magi arrive and say, where is the newborn king of the Jews? You can imagine he's saying, wait a minute, that's my title. (laughs) He is immediately caught off guard. He's immediately unsettled. And so after the Magi return to their home region, and Herod realizes that he's been tricked, he orders the execution of all boys two and under in the whole region of Bethlehem. Now, we call the children who were killed in that slaughter, the boys who died, we call them the holy innocents. They are in many respects some of the first martyrs of our faith. Now, as you hear this, you might say, wait a minute. If all the boys two and under in the greater Bethlehem area were martyred, How did John the Baptist survive? And first of all, if you ask that question, bravo. Okay, someone's thinking, right? Well, the reason why we are told this is not in the scriptures, but in tradition, that when the soldiers went to the home of Zachariah and Elizabeth, they walked in and they saw they were an older couple. And they said, these old people don't have any kids. And they kept moving on, right? So because of the older age, the providential older age of his parents, John the Baptist was spared from this slaughter. So after the Holy Family received the Magi, we are told that Joseph is told in a dream, take the family and go to Egypt. Now it's interesting that gold, frankincense, and myrrh, maybe you've wondered, where'd that go? What'd they do with that? Well, our tradition tells us that they sold, Joseph sold the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, took the money, that's how the Holy Family was able to relocate to Egypt, to get to Egypt and to settle in Egypt. You know, in Egypt right now, you go to Cairo, you can actually see the church that's built over the house where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph lived. It's still there. In fact, I visited there when I was in my 20s. One day in the future, I hope to host a pilgrimage and offer mass at that church. You can go there and still see the ruins of the house where they lived. You can go to a local well, which is still used by people today, to go to a local well where Our Lady would have drawn water. So they were in Cairo, and we suspect that they were there for about two years. And then Joseph is told again by an angel, Herod is dead, bring them home. And so Joseph brought the Holy Family back to the Promised Land. But when he arrived, he saw that the son of Herod had actually taken place, had already taken authority. He was worse than his father. So exercising the virtue of prudence, Joseph did not go back to Bethlehem, but instead went to his own hometown of Nazareth because it was under a different political authority. And from the age of about four until 30, that's where Jesus Christ grew up, that's where he was raised, that's where he lived, that's where he worked in the trade of Joseph. So dear friends, that sequence of events can help us just understand the early life of our Lord. So oftentimes, liturgically or devotionally, these get kind of blurred 
And sometimes the clarity of the sequence can be misunderstood or not fully grasped. So with that understanding, we could look and see that the Magi definitely played their part, their part in the early events of, in the life of our Lord. And the Magi we see were willing to follow something beyond themselves, beyond their own feelings, their preferences, their emotions, their worldview. And in many respects, we can learn from the Magi in this area. We are obsessed in the contemporary West with our emotions. I think it, or I feel it, I feel it, it feels good, it must be right. <laughs> no, 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 right? So we, we live our entire lives by our emotions in the West. But our emotions, our feelings are very fickle. We have to be very careful. Are we willing to trust something outside of our emotions, outside of our own thoughts? Years ago, someone said to me, I will not believe anything I cannot understand. Wow. That you're not going to believe in the greatest things in human life. You're not going to believe in love or hope or faith. You're not going to believe in God because the greatest things in life cannot be fully understood. Are we willing to go beyond ourselves? Are we willing to trust something, someone, beyond ourselves? The Magi were willing to do that. The Magi knew the stars, so God spoke to them through the stars. God is always willing to meet us where we are and then take us where we need to be. The Magi were willing to follow what they knew as God revealed him through the stars. In our lives, wherever we might be, God seeks to reveal himself to us, to see where we are, and then again lead us and guide us to where we need to be. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why our Lord constantly taught in parables, so people could understand him. Oh, he's talking about farming. Oh, he's talking about you know, fishing. Oh, he's talking about the practical things of life that people could understand. He met people where they were, and he brought them where they needed to be. We see the Magi willing to make that journey. When the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, it's powerful that when they got to Jerusalem and they were talking to Herod, the way in which they found the answer, so all this, this journey, all this movement, the answer was ultimately found in consulting the scriptures, looking to the Bible. When the Magi arrived, King Herod told the scribes, go to the scriptures and find out where the Christ is supposed to be born. They came back and said, well, according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, I already told you about Herod. Do you think that made him happy? To hear that this other king was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. You recall that David was the most revered king in Jewish history, most revered king in salvation history. And so when Herod heard David, you can imagine that was like salt on an open wound. David? Constantly I have to hear about David, huh? And this king, this child that's been born, has been born in the city of David. So it was easy when he found out that the Magi left without consulting with him. We see his cruelty. He ordered the execution of children. But the answer to what the Magi were searching for was found in the sacred scripture by studying and reading the Bible. After they received this answer, we are told that the star reappeared in order to guide them to Bethlehem and to the specific house where the Christ child was. And the scriptures tell us that when they arrived, they went into the house, saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now this is very important. We know we're reading Matthew's gospel. Four gospel books, Matthew is the most Jewish in terms of the prophecies. So Matthew is focusing on the Jewish people. We know Mark is focusing on those who are persecuted. Luke is to the Gentiles. That's why most of us like Luke better, because we're Gentiles, right? John is writing from the Jewish perspective, but from the temple, from liturgy. 
John was an Old Testament priest, so he's, everything is from the liturgical part of the temple. But Matthew, he's speaking from the synagogue experience of the Jewish faith. Everything is prophecy fulfillment, prophecy fulfillment. His whole gospel is trying to let us know that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah. He has fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament. Now these prophecies included the specific prophecies, the promises, but it also involved the institutions of the kingdom of David, that the Messiah would have to fulfill all these things. Matthew would have been very aware of that. In fact, in light of that, we know that in the kingdom of David, in the Israelite community, in the Israelite kingdom, the queen was never the king's wife. In Israel, this is very unique, in Israel, the queen was always the king's mother. Now, in large part because the king had multiple wives, sometimes hundreds of them, and most of them would be foreigners because it would be political associations. And God's people would never allow a queen to rule over them who was not in the covenant of God. So they always favored the queen mother. She was the queen. She was also the one who could speak frankly to the king, tell him when he's wrong or what he should do better. In fact, we are told in the books of, of kings that Solomon had his throne, and right next to him was a throne for his mother. That is also the basis of the practice in the Catholic Church of having the altar, the throne of God, flanked by Our Lady. So the throne of the, of the Queen Mother is always near the throne of the King. And so incidentally, the Queen Mother, she was, her throne was called the throne of grace. If you were in trouble with the king and you got invited to see the king, if you get the throne room and if you could hightail it fast enough to get to the queen mother and grab her slipper and make a request there at the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, it's called both, and the queen mother granted your request, the king would defer to his mother because she ruled with him. When the prophets are speaking to the king, they always address the king and then they mention the queen mother. So in Israel... The queen is the queen's mother. That's very important for us. In Hebrew, this is called the gabira. So the gabira is very important in order for us to understand that term. It's because of this that Matthew is stressing that when the Magi approach, they enter the home, they see Christ and his mother. And then what do they do? We're told in the scriptures, they prostrate and showed them homage. Both. So we see Matthew, coming from the Jewish perspective, is letting us know Mary is the Queen Mother, that she is the fulfillment of that part of the prophecy. Now, this is so important because sometimes as Catholic Christians, I hear people say, you know, we have so much stuff that's not in the Bible. Where's that in the Bible? Well, sometimes you just have to understand a little bit of the biblical context. You have to understand the culture of the Bible. You have to do a little bit of research and understand Because here, Matthew is very clearly, to the Jewish reader, to the Jewish listener, it would have been very clear what Matthew was saying. Oh, the newborn king with his mother, oh, that's the Gebera, that's the queen mother. It would have been very clearly understood. When the Magi arrived, they give him three gifts, gold, which expresses his divinity, frankincense, which expresses his priesthood. Because frankincense at that point was very expensive and would have only been used in sacred worship. So we are told, and this is the fulfillment of prophecy, gold and frankincense, that he would in fact be a priest king. A priest king, like Melchizedek. Remember we mentioned Melchizedek in the first Eucharistic prayer in the Roman canon? Some of you have reached out to me over the past couple of years and said, who's Melchizedek? 
There was the priest king of Salem who blessed Abraham, our forefather in faith. And so we are told that Jesus Christ would be in the order of Melchizedek. He'd be a priest king. The order of Melchizedek, the order of David. But what's interesting is the Magi give gold and frankincense. We heard that in our first reading. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. But what else do they present to Jesus Christ? Right, myrrh. Like, why would they give him myrrh? Well, we know that myrrh was actually the ointment that was used for dead bodies. It had a strong smell. It had to have a strong smell because dead bodies stink, right? So that's what you use to anoint the body, a dead body. So here we are told that gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what we're being reminded of in the greater prophecies is that the Savior will come, but he'll be a wounded Savior. That when the Messiah would come, it would not be by glory and power. He would come by humility and suffering, that he would die for us. He would be wounded and die. And so this is also given to us in fulfillment here as the Magi present this myrrh to the Christ child. Dear friends, after encountering the Christ, the Magi, we are told, went home by a different way. That's not just directions. That's actually a specification that's indicating what's happening in their hearts. They were changed, radically changed, by their encounter with Jesus Christ. When they went home, did they need a star? No, they didn't need a star anymore. They had the living God, made flesh for our salvation. It changed everything. When they were told, you go home, don't tell Herod, okay? That's gonna hurt us, that's gonna hurt our homelands by not referring to this king who is known for his cruelty, but we're gonna do whatever's told. We don't need the stars anymore, we know what we're doing. Everything changed. All that they knew changed by their encounter with Jesus Christ. So what are some takeaways that we can learn from the Magi? First, are we willing to take the journey of faith, dear friends? The Magi traveled a year and a half. They left their homeland, their language, their food, their families, the comfort of their own bed. They left everything they knew, and for a year and a half, they were just traveling. And they were willing to do it because they knew the one that they were looking for. Are we willing to make the journey of faith? What happens when our journey of faith doesn't go the way we think it should? So oftentimes there are people who will say, well, this bad thing happened, or I prayed about this thing, it didn't happen, it didn't come through, and and you know what, that's it, I, I can't have faith anymore, I don't believe in God. Well, if that's your understanding, then you never had faith in the first place. Because, friends, faith is only faith when it's the only thing you have. When the world all goes wrong and it seems like everything's imploding and you hold on, and you declare the certainty God has a plan and I know his plan is good, that's faith. That's faith. Are we willing to make the journey of faith like the Magi? Are we willing to trust what is beyond ourselves? That can be so difficult for the contemporary world to leave our own hearts, our own minds, our own comfort zones and actually trust what is beyond us. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to persevere in the search for Jesus Christ? Or again, does every possible disappointment or or perceived failure or difficulty just make us implode and quit? Are we willing to persevere? Are we willing, quoting St. Paul, to fight the good fight and to run the race? Are we willing to do this? Are we willing to encounter Jesus Christ wherever we find him? The Magi, this esteemed group of great teachers of the East, when they arrived, they were probably not expecting to find the Christ child in this little simple house in Bethlehem, a backwoods town, 
in this kingdom of the Israelites. They did not find the Christ where they expected him. They would have expected a palace, a military, a large court, grandeur. None of that was the case. But when they found him, they accepted him where he was. Are you willing to accept Christ wherever he might show himself to you? Maybe it's suffering or disappointment. Maybe it's embracing the cross. Are you willing to accept Christ wherever he is when you find him? Are you willing, are you willing to let yourself encounter him? When you encounter Jesus Christ, wherever he might be, are you willing to worship him in spirit and truth? Friends, we have a lot of work to do in terms of worship. A lot of work. We have lost the sacredness of the Mass, of the holy sacrifice by which we are saved. We've been working on that here at Our Lady of Grace. We're making small steps, but still Catholic Christians treat the Mass like garbage. It is shocking to see the sacrilege, the blasphemy, the disrespect, the irreverence. Are we willing to worship? The Magi saw the Christ with his mother and they did him homage. Are we giving homage to God? Are we preparing for the holy sacrifice? Do we understand that this is the most important thing we do all week? And are we preparing ourselves to worship in spirit and truth? And this final point, when we encounter Christ and we worship him, are we allowing Jesus Christ to convert us and change us? We can get stuck in our ways. We can think, no, no, my way is the best way. We can think, nope, this is what has to be done. Are we, are we willing to let Jesus Christ change us? Everything the Magi knew changed in their encounter with Jesus Christ. Are we allowing that internal total conversion, that total transformation to happen in our lives when we meet Jesus Christ? There are people who live by vengeance and they refuse the conversion to mercy. There are people who live by selfishness and refuse to accept the call to openness to life. There are people who live by greed and refuse the conversion to the tithe and to generosity. Everything the Christians are called to do, all that we are called, called to live, seems odd to the unbeliever. It seems odd to the compromised Christian among us. Why does that family have so many kids? Why did they forgive that person and they're being kind to that person? Why, why, why are they being so generous and, and, and giving money and, and, and time and, and service to the poor? Why is this family always doing this stuff? My goodness, they're bringing diapers, they're giving blood. Why are they doing all this stuff? That's weird. It's only weird if you haven't encountered Jesus Christ and you haven't been converted by him. Because once you've been converted by Jesus Christ, my goodness, there's nothing that you don't want to give to God. Everything he asks, there's just a willing heart to surrender to him. Mercy, yes, I will show mercy. I will die to myself, I will give mercy. To welcome children, yes, we will welcome more children. We will do this, yes. To go the extra mile in selfless service, I'm tired. I'll die to myself, yes, yes. Everything changes when we have encountered the living God made flesh in Jesus Christ. When we have worshipped him in spirit and truth. Our whole lives change. Everything we know is different. Have we allowed that to happen different? Is that what has happened in our lives? Are we allowing that to happen every day? It's not like one and done. This is something we do and then we experience every day in a profound different way. Every day, a thousand different ways. God stretching and pulling us, calling us, come follow me. Are we trying to plateau, camp out? No, no, I don't want to follow. I've given enough. I've done enough. 
No, the Lord says, come, follow me. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to allow that constant transformation, that constant conversion in each of our lives? It makes all the difference. When I hear Catholics say, oh, the Mass is boring. Oh, there's so many rules in the church. It's just an indication that that's a heart that has not yet been converted to Jesus Christ. Because the sacred liturgy, our moral law, all that we live by, that's all a part of a relationship. It's all a part of a relationship. And if you don't have that relationship, then it all can seem cold and hard. And you're not trying to, and you don't understand the reason for doing it. But when there's a relationship, it all fits. It all makes sense. And you just want to constantly give your life as an oblation to him. I will constantly follow you, Lord. I will do whatever you ask of me, Lord. Give me your grace. Help me to be faithful. That's what we're called to do, dear friends. The Magi experienced it. I pray in your life you experience it. You let yourself experience that constant conversion in Jesus Christ. You let him change you. And you go home today and every day by a different way.